Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. Today's show is brought to you by Quavos, a healthy chip option made from egg whites. They got flavors like cheddar, barbecue, and salt and vinegar. It's a fantastic option for those that are looking to do a keto diet or just to be healthier in general. Go to your local grocery store or online at Quavos.com to get some for yourself today. Now, welcome back. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is our fifth episode. Ah, We're making good progress here. Five episodes. But it's the second in our new series, Patriot Rising. Now, if you want to start here, you can. You know, I advise against it. As you know from every single episode, I always advise to go back because if you start now, there's a really good chance that there's people, events, dates, all these different things and all this different context that you will not have heading into this and could make a couple things confusing for you. But if you want to jump in right here in the what late spring of 1775, I cannot stop you. Now, without further ado, episode two of Patriot Rising. Now, we left off last episode after the battles of Lexington and Concord. But remember the Olive Branch petition? You know, I had mentioned it the uh, in the last episode, and this was sort of the call for peace and mediation on the part of the colonists, you know, to try to plead with King George that it was all just a misunderstanding, that they were in fact loyal to him, and it's really just the minister's fault. And these are people like John Hancock and Thomas Jefferson, people we know later play a crucial role in American independence, sign a document, send it to the King of England, and say we are loyal to you. And this is in 1775. So you can begin to see that there was an effort to stop this war from happening. But again, you have to account for almost this jet lag-like effect when it comes to communication back then. It takes a very long time for a piece like this to get to the king's eyes. And by the time he reads it, and then by the time he responds and that response gets to the colonies, the whole situation could be totally changed. And it was totally changed. And he's working out issues that have been either fixed or haven't been thought of back at the frontier, back in the Americas, in literal months. So he reads this petition, tosses it to the side, and declares the colonies are an open rebellion. Which was actually not necessarily true. All the events here that have happened are in Boston, or in the greater Boston area. Maybe some happen elsewhere, but to say that the colonies are all an open rebellion is a little bit of a stretch. But nonetheless, this seems that this small rebellion you know, can be squashed. You know, A big British force can come in, squash this rebellion, and it will all be over. But remember, it might be a mind reader, but King George is acting without knowledge of what has transpired at the Lexington Green, without knowledge of what's happened at Concord, and without knowledge of what happened on the march back to Boston. So this sort of jet lag communication effect is really going to end up haunting them later in the future. It's sort of like a Steve Bartman situation. Now, I'm from Chicago, so virtually everyone around me knows who this guy is. And if you don't, let me run it down real quickly. Bartman was a Cubs fan who was sitting down the third baseline of Wrigley Field listening to a pocket radio broadcast of the game he was at. And then the broadcast he was listening to was just ever so slightly delayed from the game that was happening right in front of him. And on top of that, if you go to a baseball game, you know that if you see a ball get hit... You won't hear the crack of the bat for a bit after. You know, you know the, the crack noise it makes when it hits. You don't hear that because sound travels slower than light, which is essentially what's happening with communication here on a much slower scale. Regardless, a player for the opposing team, i.e. not his cubbies, hit a fly ball with two outs left into left field, and Bartman reacts without knowing that much about what's happening. 
He's listening to the game. He hears the bat, but the radio broadcast, which would have and was exclaiming that a player was going to be in range to catch this ball, get the out, and send the Cubs to the World Series, but he doesn't know that because the information is coming in slower than the events are happening in front of him, and he goes to grab the ball, and it disrupts the Cubs player's ability to make that catch and ends up screwing over his whole team. And that's essentially what King George has here. He's making macro decisions and micro decisions with little more than a hunch of what's actually happening on the American front because he does not have a clear and up-to-date understanding of what is transpiring. And while he actually ended up being right again about this rebellion being afoot, this delay will have grave consequences. But this is still not really a war. In most people's eyes, this is just a regional group of farmers who are taking pot shots and causing trouble because it was. That's exactly what it was so far. But starting from April 19th, 1775, I mean the same day as the march back to Boston, these colonists follow the British forces back to Boston and begin trying to force them out entirely, which as we can recall from the last episode, had a garrison there. But these are still farmers and townspeople with squirrel guns, muskets, and virtually no artillery trying to evict a truly immaculate army. And I do want to clarify one thing from last episode. This is not the greatest army on earth. It's really well trained, but it's not that large. Their navy is still the big keystone of their entire military apparatus. You know, Prussian states could put up armies of 150,000 men, while the British army had about 48,000 men. Now, not saying they weren't trained and fantastic, but it really wasn't the greatest land army of the day. You know, and World War I saw the same issue as the British Expeditionary Force was, you know, gets to the French front and realizes that they are nothing compared to the millions and millions of German soldiers pouring across the lines. But nonetheless, the colonists were sitting there, and these militia especially were sitting there, knowing the match had been lit. The fuse was going, and they needed to arm themselves before the sort of proverbial powder keg explosion happens in the form of a coordinated British invasion. Because if they don't get weapons fast, and they don't get order together very quickly, they will simply be gunned down, and the revolution will be over. Furthermore, if they can't get to more of the colonies sort of jump on board with this full-fledged revolution bandwagon, they'll also be crushed. Because as of now, they've started it. They've gotten the ball rolling. You know, events have happened and things in the future have been set in place that cannot be undone in sort of the, sort of the mood of a Lord of the Rings quote. I know I got that one wrong. But nonetheless, they do need to get these things done because they know they've started something that is going to keep going and they need to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row for when the reaction happens. But something happens in New York to keep this ball rolling for the Patriots. So let's back up. In 1759, Fort Ticonderoga's importance could not be understated. It laid on the frontier between France and England's territories. So during the French and Indian War, or Seven Years' War, or whatever you want to call it, it was key. But when the war ends in 1763, the Peace of Paris, when France gives up all their North American land to the British, the French there detonate their magazine and abandon the fort. And by 1775, this fort was only manned by about 50 men. 
in an area with very little importance compared to the importance that it had held in the years prior. But it actually held significant importance to the militiamen and colonists, as inside the fort there were mortars, artillery pieces, and cannons, munitions, gunpowder, all things you know, these farmers carrying hunting equipment outside of Boston were in short supply of. The fort itself also rested on the banks of Lake Champlain, which connected the 13 American colonies with the northern regions, otherwise known as Canada. So following the events at Lexington and Concord, General Gage writes up to his governor at Quebec, which is a guy named, well, Guy Carleton, and tells him to fortify not just Fort Tagandaroga, but also the forts at Crown Point and a couple others, because he's aware that as of now, the colonists are not in the position to succeed. They've started something, they've seized an initiative, but they are very, very, very beatable. And he knows that there's weapons in these forts, that this might be a, you know, a hotbed for militia activity to come get these, but they're not using the colonists' communication network. General Gage writes a letter, and it takes forever to get to Quebec. And the Quebec governor did not end up getting this letter until well after the following events transpired. And as I pointed out, the colonists, with a much quicker communication network, were way ahead of General Gage. And a militia colonel named Benedict Arnold. Well, actually, I'm going to stop right there because you might recognize that name. But for this show, I want you to try and forget these names and battles. Try and start from scratch, you know, blank slate, because at least for me, and I assume for most other Americans especially, many of these figures hold an almost mythological place in our minds, and it confuses the, the actual events so much. So I ask you, before I continue talking about Benedict Arnold, that you try to wipe the slate clean. You've never heard these names, you've never heard these events, you're learning from scratch. So, regardless, Arnold was on his way to Boston after the events in April at Lexington and Concord. And he was very familiar with this fort and the region itself. And he was aware that things were hitting the fan and that the British were being sieged in Boston. And of course, he was aware that there were little munitions there to actually do the job to push the British out. So he goes to Boston and he goes to these different areas and he pleads to the Patriot leaders and the other militias to act on this. And the Connecticut Committee of Correspondence agrees. Money is given to him, about 100 pounds to be exact. He's given guns and powder and told to recruit men. Okay, fine, you got it. That's a great idea. Go take that fort. But on his way up to upstate New York, well, modern-day upstate New York, you do have to note that back then there was a thing called the New Hampshire Charter, and it sort of made it very vague which lands were to be, were to be governed by who. So think of it. It's just north of Albany. That's where you should think of this place being. Regardless, on his way up, he hears that another group of people are looking to take the fort for their own reasons. Now, these are not British, but they're also not people fighting for the revolution necessarily, because a man named Ethan Allen and his family ran, quote, Green Mountain Boys, end quote, militia. Actually, my brother owns their flag. Think of an American flag, but the red and white stripes are just solid green. Okay, nevertheless, Arnold freaks out at this, and he rides north as fast as he can to get to these militiamen before they take the fort for themselves. Probably, in their eyes, just to get guns and settle land disputes in the New Hampshire Grant. And Arnold rides so fast and so frantically, he actually ends up killing his horse getting there. He was also warned that on the way there, that although Allen's effort to you know, take this fort had, quote, no official sanction, end quote, 
his men were unlikely to serve under anyone else. This was a private militia going for their own gains. How would they listen to this Benedict Arnold character? So leaving early the next day, Arnold finally catches up just in time to reach Allen to join their war council, where he makes the case, based on the fact that he had formal authorization to act from the Massachusetts committee and had the you know, necessary military prowess to do it, that I'm the one to take control. Now, who ended up being the official leader of all this is shrouded in mystery. Some say Arnold led it completely. Others say it was co-ran, where they both ran it together, Allen and Arnold. And others say Arnold was actually just allowed to march next to Allen and did virtually nothing. But regardless, they begin moving under the cover of dark, but the men begin to get strung out. But they know dawn is coming. And not wanting to lose the element of surprise, Arnold or Allen, or both, decide that it's better to surprise the fort with the men they have that are already caught up than to wait for the full force to catch up and to take the fort in broad daylight. So they take their limited number of men, cross Lake Champlain, climb the hill, get up to this giant fort with all these weapons in it, and they find the front door wide open, literally. From all records taken from this event, the front door of the fort was actually ajar. And the the militiamen storm the fort, put guns to the sleeping British soldiers' faces, wake them up, and take the fort without firing a single shot. Now, interestingly, when the commander of this fort asks, you know, incredulously, you know, he asks Alan, you know, by whose authority are you taking this fort from? Alan bellows, quote, in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress, end quote. But Alan's men... These militiamen from you know, modern-day Vermont and East New York and part of New Hampshire, these were not great soldiers by any standard. They were undisciplined, but the control of Fort Ticonderoga and later Crown Point, which they actually ended up capturing soon after, was not really clear. But Allen's men seemed to melt away with the alcohol drying up at the forts. So the alcohol runs out. The militiamen leave, and the battle for who's leading the forts becomes very clear because only one's left standing, and it's Arnold. And he becomes the clear commander there. And we will pick up with him and these forts near New York and in Vermont later. But by June, it was clear to the Continental Congress that if this rebellion was to amount to anything, they needed a clear military with order and discipline, you know, as these unregulated and disjointed militias could only do so much against the British Army, let alone its navy. So the Congress resolved that, quote, that a general be appointed to command all the Continental forces raised or to be raised for the defense of American liberty, end quote. And that, quote, $500 a month be allowed for his pay and expenses, end quote. Now, there were several candidates for this position. There was General Artemis Ward from Massachusetts, Israel Putnam, um, who actually ended up being too old for the job, Charles Lee, but he had no political base, and John Hancock, actually, but was a little flamboyant and would oftentimes ride around in these bright military outfits with his saber drawn, just about town, you know, with his sword out. So there was really only one clear choice. And on June 17, 1775, John Adams wrote his wife that, quote, I can now inform you that Congress have made choice of the modest, the virtuous, the amiable, generous, and brave George Washington to be the general of the American army. And this was a fantastic choice. 
Now, not because he was necessarily a fantastic leader. We'd heard about his you know, track record during the French and Indian War. He lost twice. But nonetheless, he had battle experience. And that was crucial. But he also had a habit for command. He had an imposing presence, according to many. But he was also, quote, an astute politician, end quote. He wore his custom uniform during the Continental Congress hearings. And most importantly, maybe of all, he was from Virginia. The Southern colonies have not been in this story that much, if at all. We've heard not much, if anything, about the Carolinas, Georgia, and besides Patrick Henry, nothing's really been coming out of Virginia either. So picking a general from the South showed these cautious Southern legislators and Southern uh, colonists that this was not just a rogue New England struggle. This is a full-scale revolution. And Washington did his best, you know, did his whole the classic bashful acceptance to this post, even though he clearly wanted. He says, oh no, you know, I am no man to lead such a you know a magnificent cause. And they say, no, 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 yes, yes, you are, you are. And he goes, ah, okay, if you insist. And this is where you need to begin to remove the myth of George Washington and the myth of virtually every character in this story because let's start the very first one, George Washington can't tell a lie. But right after he gets picked, what does he do? He tells his lies. Because he tells his wife that he did everything he could to avoid the post and to come back to her, but was going to Boston anyway because he had no choice but to lead the army, when in reality he was most excited to do this. Outside of George Washington's, his, you know, his mythological place in American lore, Boston is still under siege, and Washington, if he had even been picked yet, had not arrived yet. This is all happening around June 16th, June 17th, and June 15th, 1775, and the British looked to take control of the initiative once and for all. Now, the Patriots were fortifying themselves on the hills surrounding the city and harbor, trying to cut off the British. Now, this isn't like a harbor like, uh, I think, something like L.A. or San Diego, where the actual harbor's on the ocean. Boston's actually a little bit inland, so there's little peninsulas that can stick out and choke the harbor. And that's exactly what the colonists are doing. They go to Dorchester, they go to Charlestown, and they begin to try to constrict the only way the British have any source of reinforcements or ammunition or food. And that's by trying to close the port down from the outside. But in the eyes of the British, this is a measly photo face. Because according to a Royal Navy surgeon allowed into the American camp after the battle conquered, he wrote that the New England army was, quote, nothing but a drunken, canton, lying, praying, hypocritical rabble without order, subjection, discipline, or cleanliness, and must fall into pieces of itself over the course of the next three months, end quote. They're going to fall apart in three months. Hmm. Obviously, retrospect is everything, but this is the mentality they have. This is not even a real enemy they're facing. And Captain Evelyn wrote to one of his cousins, who happens to be one of Lord North's ministers, that the New Englanders were, quote, a set of rascals and poltroons, upstart vagabonds, and the dregs and scorn of the human species, end quote. And another duke remarks that they are, quote, undisciplined and cowardly men, end quote. And this all feeds to King George and his government. And King George III remarks that, quote, when once these rebels have felt a smart blow, they will submit. End quote. Now, what's really helpful about this subject, and I find this a lot 
easier to do than the Han in the sense that none of these have to be translated, at least for me as an English speaker from America. Having the sources with the exact words they used is a really important part of history because when you have a translation, what the person meant can be very, very, very misconstrued based on the words you pick and the words you translate. You know, you can translate a word and it can mean like two different things and the way you pick it can completely change the event and the person saying it. So that's just my thought on having a direct quote from King George saying very bluntly that he thinks, oh, one, one blow to this army and oh, they'll have to submit. It'll be over. And by the middle of June 1775, General Gage of the British Army got only 6,000 men as reinforcements even though he had went all the way back to London and asked for 20,000. But to compensate for the lackluster amount of reinforcements, the British government gave Gage, gave Gage, tongue twister, three major generals. And according to Noel Ray in the book, quote, The People's War, end quote, the generals were, quote, Sir William Howe, 45, a heavy drinker and gambler, and according to Charles Lee, the most indolent of mortals. And according to a Hessian commander named Leopold von Heister, he was as brave as my sword, but no more of a general than my arse. There was also Henry Clinton. In his own words, a shy expletive for a female dog, with a defensive and querulous personality and a habit of pestering his superiors for advice that ended up being right. And lastly, the flamboyant Gentleman Johnny Burgogne, who had last seen military service in 1762, end quote. But on the American side, General Artemis Ward, remember one of the candidates for head of the Continental Army, was in Cambridge, across the Charles River, desperately trying to get the militias that he had, you know, given the call to arms for, and getting them into order. Because these guys all showed up, their own militia showed up, you know, they heard the cry for battle, they showed up, and now what do we do? There's no clear command structure, there's no clear supply train, and there's really no clear command structure. So he begins trying to get these people in order, and the American general Putnam, who, by the way, was no means a renowned strategist, in fact, was known to be quite silly when it came to strategy, heard a rumor that the British were going to occupy a position on Breed's Hill on the Charlestown Peninsula, and himself took a force of several hundred militiamen to the hill before the British could take it. And remember, it is not Bunker Hill. This was Breed's Hill which was an outcropping of Bunker Hill. Another big myth in American lore, that's the Battle of Bunker Hill. But in reality, the, the heart of the force and the battle was going to take place on this outcropping known as Breed's Hill. And on the night of June 16th, you know, the day before John Adams would tell his wife that Washington had been tapped to lead the Continental Army, the militiamen dug in. The moment the sun came up, British lookouts on the HMS Lively spotted them and began to fire upon them. And the you know, little damage was done by this barrage, other than, quote, decapitating Asa Pollard, one of the defenders, end quote. But the battle was on. The Americans had taken the initiative and the British saw it and were going to do something about it. And according to Noel Ray, quote, the firing also served to summon the local population to come and watch what Bourgogne called, quote, one of the greatest scenes of war that can be imagined, end quote. So everyone from Boston and the surrounding area hustled up to get their eyes on this battle, and the British began to bombard Charlestown from Copps Hill, and they were using heated cannonballs and explosive shells that set the wooden town ablaze 
Smoke was everywhere, and it shrouded the American fire, but it also shrouded the advancing British lines. And it was decided by Gage and two other generals to take the hill in a frontal assault. They were going to go for the knockout, war-winning blow right there and right then. Though, you know, Henry Clinton, one of the generals that had been sent, suggested that they just cut off the American force by landing at the Charlestown Neck, you know, cutting the American force off from their support, attacking from the rear, and just winning the battle outright. But this was ignored. And this was ignored on the part of the British leadership out of sheer ignorance. Because they wanted to strike so much fear and devastation on these rebels that they would, quote, never take up arms against the king again, end quote. And to do that, they really needed a bayonet charge. And Burgundy once said that, quote, the bayonet in the hands of the valiant is irresistible, end quote. And the bayonet is something I haven't really talked about a whole lot because I think I mentioned it in the first episode. But the bayonet, if you really don't know what it is, it's about a 14-inch triangular blade that you hitch to the end of your musket. And muskets are not rifled. Muskets are a, sort of a ball. So you know when you shoot a paintball, if you've ever gone paintballing, it's not accurate because the ball can spin on its own, hit the air, and move in all different directions. So what the British would do would fire a very well-coordinated volley, you know, try to hit something, but then advance with a bayonet charge and use this deadly weapon against their enemies. It's scary to look at. I mean, I don't think, you know, many things scare me more than getting stabbed by a bayonet. And that's got to be up there with things I want to avoid. And these are farmers they're facing, and these are militiamen. So they're not armed with the nicest bayonets, if they're armed with bayonets at all. So the British plan is to bayonet charge from the front up this hill and take out the American force once and for all. And it was really mental games, because surely no one, especially not a rabble group of militiamen, could stand against the line of British soldiers, you know, with the beautiful picturesque sun beaming off their bayonets and their red coats. And General Howe led the main assault, exclaiming that the hill was, quote, was an open and of easy ascent, and that, quote, would be easily carried out, end quote. But this is where things begin to get a little iffy. Because the American riflemen, seeing General Howe in his large stature, his fancy uniform, they took a liking to him and began firing at him. And soon, he was one of the only officers left on the battlefield before they'd even gotten to the front lines. Now, to describe this battle, I want to read direct quotes about the battle. Because it's one thing to say, well, they took the front line, and then this happened, and then that happened. For me, it'd be easier to read one of these quotes. Now, this is from Militia Corporal Amos Farnsworth. Now, he said, quote, As the enemy approached, our men was not only exposed to the attack of a very numerous musketry, but to the heavy fire of the battery on Copse Hill. Four or five men of war, several armed boats or floating batteries in the Mystic River, and a number of field pieces. Notwithstanding, we within the entrenchment, and at a breastwork without, sustained the enemy's attack with great bravery and resolution killed and wounded great numbers, and repulsed them several times. And after bearing, for about two hours, as severe and heavy a fire as perhaps ever was known, and many having fired away all their ammunition, and having no reinforcement, although there was a great body of men nigh by, which were actually, these men were on, those men were on Bunker Hill, we were well overpowered by numbers and obliged to leave the entrenchment, retreating about sunset, into the small distance over the Charlestown Neck. NB, I did not leave the entrenchment until the enemy got in. 
I then retreated 10 or 15 rods. Then I received a wound in my right arm. The ball gowling through a little below my elbow, breaking the little shell bone. Another ball struck my back, taking a piece of skin out as big as a penny. But I got to Cambridge that night. Now I want to note the reason I might have seemed to struggle through that quote is that not everyone was that literate. This was a considerably smart person writing this, but a lot of these words are written phonetically. So ball is sort of spelled, you know, musket ball, B-A-L-L, is spelled B-A-W-L. But I also want to give the quote from Lieutenant Samuel Webb, who was a 22-year-old, actually the second Connecticut volunteers, who wrote to his brother from Cambridge very shortly after the battle. Now he said, quote, and this is a little more intense of a quote. He said, quote, about 1 o'clock p.m., we that were at Cambridge heard that the regulars were landing from their floating batteries. An alarm was sounded, and we ordered to march directly down to the fort at Charlestown. Before our company could possibly get there, the battle had begun in earnest, and cannon and musket balls were flying about our ears like hail and hotter fire than you have no idea of. On our march down, we met an enemy of our worthy wounded friends, sweltering in their blood, carried on the shoulders by their fellow soldiers. Judge you what must be the feelings of this shocking spectacle. The orders were, quote, Press on! Press on! Our brothers are suffering and will soon be cut off! We pushed on and came onto the field of battle through the cannoning of the ships, bombs, chain shot, ring shot, and double-headed shot flew as thick as hailstones. But thank heavens, few of our men suffered by them. But when we mounted the summit, where the engagement was, good God, how the balls flew. I freely acknowledge I have never had such a tremor come over me before. We descended the hill onto the field of battle and began our fire very briskly. The regulars fell in great plenty. But to do them justice, they kept a grand front and stood their ground nobly. Twice before this time, they gave way. But not before long we saw numbers mounting the walls of our fort, on which our men in the fort were ordered to fire and make a swift retreat. We covered their retreat by a brisk fire from our small arms. The dead and wounded lay on every side of me. Their groans were piercing indeed, though long before this time I believe the fear of death had quitted almost every breast. They now had possession of our fort and four field pieces, and by much the advantage of the ground. And to tell you the truth, our reinforcements belonging to this province, very few of them came onto the field, but lay sulking in the opposite side of the hill, which was, by the way, Bunker Hill. That's where they were sulking. Our orders then came to make the best retreat we could. We set off, almost gone with fatigue, and ran very fast up the hill, leaving some of our dead and wounded on the field. We retreated over Charlestown Neck through the thickest of the ship's fire. Here, some principal officers fell by cannon and bombs. After we got out of the ship's fire under the covert of the hill, near another entrenchment of ours, we again rallied and lined up every part of the road and fields. Here we were determined to die or conquer if they ventured over the neck, but it grew dark and we saw them pitching tents. We retired to our entrenchment and lay on our arms all night, keeping vast numbers of our troops out on scouting parties. They kept up a constant fire from the ships and floating batteries all night but few of them reached us. Now, for me, those quotes really show the battle itself. And these are from the American perspective. 
And I, the, one of the key points you heard there was that the reinforcements were all on the other side of the hill, on another hill actually called Bunker Hill. The real fight was happening on Breed's Hill. And while the British ended up winning and capturing vital artillery pieces, I mean, as you heard, there weren't a whole lot of artillery pieces left, and the, those at the forts in New York were nowhere close to Boston at the time. But the British wanted a very steep cost, showing them that the Americans were here to fight but also showed other Americans that it was in fact possible to stand against a frontal British assault. Gage wrote that, quote, the colonists were not the despicable rabble too many have supposed them to be, that they were fired by a, quote, an uncommon degree of zeal and enthusiasm, end quote. Furthermore, the burning of Charlestown further angered the colonists and made for a great propaganda piece. And this battle was important for all those reasons. It showed the British that they are not in for a simple farmer duel. And it showed the Americans that it is possible to fight the British. And on July 5th, 1775, Congress ordered 13,000, quote, coats to be provided for non-commissioned officers and soldiers in the Massachusetts force, end quote. Well, we were actually able to tell who was at Breed's Hill by seeing the request for coats from loved ones of the dead at Breed Hill. Now here's one of the quotes from Breed's Hill. Haverhill, March 20th, 1776. Please to pay to Jonathan Webster one pound and five shillings, it being for a coat allowed to my son John Eaton, bounty by the province, he having never received it, he being killed in the fight at Bunker Hill, signed John Eaton of Captain James Sawyer's company other ones like Pepperell, September 30th, 1776, to the gentleman upon the committee of clothing sitting at Watertown, please to pay to Captain Edmund Bancroft the money for a uniform coat that my son was entitled to, who was a soldier in the year 1775 and lost his life in the Battle of Bunker Hill, and you will oblige your humble servant, Jeremiah Shattuck. And there are tons more like this describing those loved ones of the dead requesting the coat and the honor for their fallen family members. Now Bunker Hill marks the first true battle of the Revolutionary War and it was incredibly bloody. It was a brutal fight and the British sort of brought this on themselves by doing that frontal assault. You know instead of sneaking up from behind and just winning the battle quick and easy with superior military tactics they tried to essentially show off crush the, the you know the life and fight out of the rebels and all it ended up doing was turning into a slugfest where the Americans showed that untrained militiamen can push waves after wave of British regulars backwards showed the British that they were in for something different and this began to shape a new phase of the Revolutionary War and after this battle though the Patriot forces surrounded Boston and entrenched themselves dug trenches, made fortifications, and this confined the British forces to Boston and the newly captured Charlestown Peninsula. Now, though they had been surrounded, the, the American forces just could not push the British out. I mean, they could not match up against the British forces head-to-head -head in the city, and surely could not even dream to force their naval power out of the harbor without artillery of their own. But on July 3rd, 1775, George Washington finally arrives and this marks a mini turning point in the war. Now, there are many turning points in the war, 
But this changes the Patriot force forever. You know, when he got there, the militias were in shambles. This was a complete militia force. Everyone was fighting really for their own personal gain. No clear structure of order. I mean, here's like a problem that they faced. Okay, so this is a real problem. So some of these militias wouldn't share their gunpowder kegs to the general store in order to spite other states' militias and other private militias. You know, you start to get the idea here of what's going on. And Washington walks up the first day, and in one of his very first orders, he was there to remind these disjointed militias that, quote, Congress had taken them into its pay and service, and they were now troops of the United Provinces of America. And it was to be hoped that all distinctions of the colonies will be laid aside, end quote. And this was on the right foot, you know, telling the militias that had their own, you know, ties to their own colonies, they had their own... Uh, ethnic and political or whatnot. They had their own little thing going on to remind them that they are all now one force fighting one common enemy for one common goal. But the New England militias remained thoroughly unconvinced. I mean, there was a lack of discipline that just probably would have drove Washington up a wall. And he was a classically trained military commander and he tried to get commission into the army he was now facing off against. And his ideal army would probably just mimic the British army. You know, officers should be appointed, not voted. Every man should be in a uniform. Everyone follows orders without question. And there should be constant drilling because he believed that, quote, discipline was the soul of an army, end quote. And the New England Minutemen, um, well, the militiamen, were described as a drunk and dirty bunch by the British. But according to Washington in a letter to his cousin, they were, quote, an exceeding dirty and nasty people, end quote. And he disdained their, quote, leveling spirit, end quote. So while at Bunker Hill they showed that these Minutemen and these militia people were fully capable of fighting against the British and they were unbelievable uh, shooters and they had unbelievable zeal, according to some of the British generals, even the American leaders disdained their lack of discipline, did not like the way they were unkept, and did not like the attitude that they gave. So, Washington, with General Lee, began to instill discipline into his men. Finally, line them up, drill them. But in Boston, the city itself, things began to deteriorate, and disdain for the British grew and grew. Now, here's a quote from Timothy Newell's, a journal kept during the time Boston was shut up. July 14th, last night awoke by the discharge of cannons on the lines. When you get July 20th, Mr. Carpenter was taken up by the night patrol. Upon examination, he had swum over to Dorchester and back again, was tried here the next day and sentenced to death passed on him and to be executed the next day. August, 4, August 1st, this morning, half past four o'clock, awoke with cannonade and small arms from Charlestown, which lasted until 11 o'clock. After that, very trying scenes. You get down all the way to October, and this is where things begin to look a little weird. The British begin to stop fighting like a military and begin to start looking like a more barbaric force. So on October 17th, he writes, quote, Two floating batteries from the provincials from Cambridge River fired upon of cannon into the camp at Common. The shot went through houses by the lamp by the Lamb Tavern. A deserter who came in this morning says one of his cannons split and killed and wounded several. Five or six hats, a waistcoat, and part of a boat came on shore at the bottom of the Common. October 25th, several nights passed, and the whole army was ordered not to undress. The cannon all loaded and grape shot from a full apprehension. The provincials would make an attack upon the town. The streets paraded all night by the lighthouse. 
October 27th, the spacious Old South Meeting House taken possession of by the Light Horse 17th Regiment of Dragoons. Real quickly, Dragoons is their version of cavalry, by the way. But, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Birch, the pulpit, pews, and seats all cut to pieces and carried off in the most savage manner as can be expressed, and destined for a riding school. The beautiful carved pew with the silk furniture of Deacon Hubbard's was taken down and carried to Blank's house by an officer and made a hog's die. So you begin to see here that the British are destroying things that are relatively special to the Americans. So destroying hallowed buildings is not helping anyone out. They're taking these beautiful churches that, you know, maybe the importance of these churches is exaggerated to instill more anger, but nonetheless, turning the pews into, a, into a, one of the British officers, you know, hog pens, that's not gonna make anyone very happy. And those in prison there, in Boston prisons, had it even worse, like characters like John Leach uh, can describe, which we'll get to later. But the British were doing nothing, and it was not great there for them either. And now, Gage ends up getting recalled to London. They're sitting there, nothing's really happening. It's surrounded, but they can't really make an assault on these entrenched fortifications. But they also know they can't get their shipping stopped by the Americans. So Gage gets recalled to London, and Howe is left in charge. Interestingly, by the way, it was Gage's wife who was widely accused of leaking the information of Gage's raid on Concord that set this whole mess on fire. Remember, the Minutemen knew it was coming. Paul Revere's ride. They go to the Lexington Green. That whole thing, that information, that spy that leaked the information, allegedly was Gage's American-born wife. But nonetheless, Howe is told to vacate Boston and move to New York and Halifax. But he simply doesn't have the shipping capacity needed to do this. So now both sides have to sit and wait until spring, and it becomes like a really, really, really peaceful version of the Western Front in 1915. Things are slow. No one's making any headway. And here there are some skirmishes, but nothing big. You know, people will test to make sure the other army's still there. You know, fire a couple shots, they fire a couple back, and you go, okay, they're still there. And you just wait. And this winter, happen and this winter happens to be especially cold. And how remarks of the winter, quote, he, wrote, he remarks, quote, the commanding officer surprised to find the necessity of repeating orders that long since ought to have been complied with. Rain, a typical reprimand. Soldiers were appearing on duty with their hair not smooth and badly powdered, several without slings to their firelocks, hats not bound, pouches in a shameful and dirty condition, no frills to their shirts and their linen very dirty, leggings hanging in a slovenly manner without their knees, their arms, and accruements by no means as clean as they ought to be." End quote. So essentially you have these soldiers of the British Army are sitting here in Boston. They're also unkept. They're not maintaining their discipline. They're breaking things. They're stealing things. And the general order for the British is also breaking apart. But when the winter hits, things get excruciatingly slow. And it's really, really cold. It gets so cold that Boston Harbor ends up freezing over and Washington, you know, looking to break this deadlock, suggests with this plan to charge across the frozen harbor and break the deadlock. And his plan obviously was quickly shot down by the Continental Congress and his other generals. And the only clear moment anything happened is when a uh, British captain who was chasing a schooner, his name was Captain Lindsay, and he'd been pursuing the schooner all the way from the West Indies when it managed to get into Gloucester Harbor but the moment he anchors, his boat, the Falcon, is fired upon. 
And that's sort of the only real incident that seems to happen during the winter. And December is also when many American soldiers' enlistment ended. So on one hand, you have the British who were cold, falling apart, orders, orders not there, especially in their standards. But on the other hand, enlistment for the American soldiers is going to end. So you have soldiers sitting here with no action, no clear purpose, maybe disgruntled that they're being drilled every day. It's freezing cold, and they don't really have to be there anymore. But General Lee was having none of it. And this is one of those forgotten moments of history that you maybe should look back at, because it's a really interesting piece of history. Because General Lee comes out of his tent and says, Men, I do not know what to call you. You are the worst of all creatures. And he continues on to fling and cuss out at all the soldiers. And he said that if they would not stay, he would order them to go to Bunker Hill and march upon it before their enlistment ended. Which essentially means that they're going to die. And he said that if they don't do it, he's going to have the American riflemen shoot at them from the back. And this whole re-enlistment question was interesting because one man tried to persuade his mate to not re-enlist. And quote, and the general see him and catched his gun out of his hands, struck him on the head and ordered him to be put under guard, end quote. The next day, General Lee posted an order stopping all rations to any soldier who would not agree to stay at least three weeks longer, end quote. And some was mad and said they would not stay the four days, and the paper was took as soon as it was dark. And another put up that said General Lee was a fool, end quote. So essentially there's this back and forth between General Lee and the soldiers, but eventually he gets enough to stay to maintain a standing force. But it's dirty. There's people writing to their wives, and their wives are saying, you know, come back home, come back home. And you have General Lee saying, I'm going to shoot you if you try to leave. I will not feed you. And some soldiers try to call his bluff, but General Lee is not someone you want to be calling a bluff from. And a bunch of soldiers still stay. But this is a key moment because in the early spring, finally, the artillery came. But this is a key moment because in early spring, you know, both sides hold out for the winter. Nothing major happens. The Americans somehow maintain a standing force even though their enlistment ends. Henry Knox is sent up to New York to Fort Ticonderoga and gets the artillery. And he brings it all the way down to Boston. And finally, the American forces have the necessary munitions to challenge the British Navy's entrance and exit from the harbor, to challenge their positions, and also protect themselves from a British assault. And the British begin to realize that this is not a winning situation. The best case scenario is they hold on to Boston and they just continue to fall into disarray. Worst case scenario, they somehow lose the city and they all die. So, Howe, with his standing orders to go back to New York, to make that a base and also to go back to Halifax, meets with Washington and agrees to not burn the city down as long as his retreat was unmolested. But that did not stop British officers, albeit the last time they did this, from breaking into homes and, quote, committing violence and breaking everything left, end quote. And this marks the beginning of the real sort of strategic war. There was a skirmish and a fire upon each other kind of incident at Lexington and Concord. There was a real battle at Bunker Hill. Oh, Breed's Hill. Oh, man, I'm going to get mad at myself. But there's a real battle. That's the first, like, oh, this is going to be a real war. But then nothing really happens. I mean, nothing of any real importance happens. Well, importance, again, relative term. Things are important that happen. Everything, you know, keeping their soldiers there was important. But on a military tactical standpoint, nothing big happens until now. 
And now the war begins to shift. And now General Washington has to make a decision on what he wants to do. The British have to make a decision on what they want to do because the rebellion now is still going and it's only picking up speed. Every day they wait, the American forces get more organized, they get more supporters, and they get more munitions from these forts that were stolen a couple months before. And this leaves them in an unbelievably precarious situation. When the American soldiers finally get into Boston, as you can probably imagine, it was a bleak scene. It had been desolated, it had been shelled, it had been broken into, and it had been molested as a city. And the American soldiers only get more fired up about the British. Even though the plan was to go to New York and Halifax, the British simply go to Halifax. And there was hardly a single British soldier to be found in any of the colonies. But everyone knew that they would be back, and there was not much doubt where they would land. Now, the plan of seizing cities and that it would control the nation was still held by the British. And the British did not look to change their strategy, even though the capture of Boston did nothing to control the nation. But the next target was New York. And American forces moved to Manhattan and Long Island, and a rumor began to spread that the British were coming with 15,000 reinforcements. Truly an outlandish number. But unlike most colonial rumors, this one was actually a gross underestimate. Finally listening to Gage's calls for a massive force to crush this rebellion in a swift blow, the British government took the gloves off and dispatched 32,000 soldiers, including but not limited to a bunch of Hessian regiments and a large naval fleet to accompany them. And in July, victory seemed easily attainable. Now while all this is happening in the summer, something happens. Something that we all know has happened. And we sort of attribute it to the war being won for some reason. And, and I don't know why, but it is. Because on July 4th, 1776, in Philadelphia, the Declaration of Independence is finally pushed through and signed. Now, if you want to say, oh, well, actually, it was written on July 2nd. You know, why don't we study it then? I'm not going to get into that conversation. But what I'm going to say is that the Declaration of Independence was signed in, a, in an era of that war that was not very friendly to the United States at that time. The British were looking mean. They were looking nasty. And they knew that the second wave was coming and it was going to be big. So they finally said, you know what? You know what this war is going to be about? Independence. And it was written by the artful hand of Thomas Jefferson, but almost a third of it had to be taken out to maintain support from the southern states, mainly over the issues of slavery. But nonetheless, Thomas Jefferson, you know, using the ideas of enlightened Britain, puts together a document that says all men shall be created equal and talks about how they all have the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Almost a complete plagiarization of the locks. You know, every man should be able to pursue life, liberty, and property. But property didn't sound as good, so he said, well, life, liberty, and happiness. And the Declaration of Independence is signed, and many people, for some reason, attribute this to being the end of the war, but it's not. And I hope this story can tell you this because the Americans are falling behind. Nothing's really happening and nothing is set in stone. And it sets up for a very, very tumultuous summer for the American forces. Why was Washington on two islands? It didn't make much sense. Why would an American force looking to avoid an outright defeat in the open field to a British force that now has a powerful navy, and as you know anything about geography, Manhattan is surrounded on both sides by water, 
So now you'd be surrounded by a fantastic navy, have one clear exit point, and Long Island does not have a clear exit point. But nonetheless, the British begin to choose Staten Island as their staging ground. And the British forces end up deciding to land at Kipps Bay in Manhattan. And the city, realizing it was probably going to get cannonade and stormed by the British Navy and Army, evacuated. And the remaining people there were mostly American soldiers. And these forces began to set up earthworks. And the British forces began to storm into Manhattan. And this is when Washington begins to make blunders that we don't necessarily think about. Manhattan is not defendable. And truly, against the people he was facing, it was a terrible idea to keep any soldiers on Manhattan, let alone to keep them on Long Island. He knew, anyone would have known this, that the British boats would have come around the Hudson River and on the other side of Manhattan, you know, on the other side where Brooklyn is, and on the other side to the east and the west, they would have had the entire island surrounded, and they did with British warships. And there was one exit point which was easily destroyable, the King's Bridge, which would have the only walkable exit from Manhattan to the rest of the country. And so now you have Putnam's forces on Manhattan and a bunch of forces in Long Island. And Washington then makes another war-ending blunder, potentially war-ending blunder, by allowing his forces to even fight toe-to-toe -to -toe in open combat, just like the British want and just like the British are trained for. And of course, he loses. And his forces have to retreat all the way north to Harlem Heights. But they don't evacuate the city completely, which is another huge blunder. They just sit there and still on Manhattan Island. And they still have not left it completely. They're like, they're waiting for something. And many people think that this was political. That if they gave up a large city like this, it would show that they were weak in some way. And there might have been some overarching political scheme to keep fighting in New York just to save face. But regardless, what's the point of saving face if your entire force gets completely cut off and surrounded? But nonetheless, a huge break happens. While Washington might make a couple blunders, the British also make some very large blunders. Because General Howe stops and he waits on Manhattan Island. Ignoring Henry Clinton's advice. You know, the same guy who had advised, you know what, what we're doing at Breed's Hill, you know, mm, we could do something better and not get ourselves completely caught up in a brutal conflict up a hill, he advises them to go around and to cut off the bridge to escape Manhattan Island. But they don't, and Howe ignores him for the second time, and a potentially second war-winning battle is slips through Howe's fingers, and Putnam engages in a forced march up along a road along the Hudson River, and he too gets away. But the British still win, and there's a seemingly feeling of joy, even though there were some potentially huge blunders that keep the war going. There's still a feeling of jubilation, but that does not last very long because on September 21st, a fire breaks out in New York. And the American fighters had taken pretty much every bell in the city with them. So with no warning and the fact that most of the citizenry had left previously, the city just burns. And this makes New York almost into some sort of weird hellscape. But eventually Fort Washington is taken and a bunch of American forces are stuck on Long Island. But on December 14th, General Howe announces that fighting for the year would be over and he looked to quarter his troops for the winter. And now by Christmas time, the British were chewing up American forces. They had control over most of Western Long Island and were pushing to finish off any forces there. And New Jersey, 
also fell into British hands. And on top of that, the British had established several outposts along the Delaware River, and Washington was now stuck in Pennsylvania, trying to maybe protect Philadelphia, and Congress now was moving to Baltimore in fear that Philadelphia was going to be overrun. Things couldn't get much worse, but they could and were. Again, the enlistment thing, the enlistment question was coming in again, because on December 1st, there was only one month left of these soldiers' enlistments, and another mass desertion could happen. And on top of that, paper money began to dissipate, ammunition began to disappear, soldiers were dying, and the plan was falling apart. Something had to be done to change the tide of the war. And on December 26th, that plan happens. There was a plan, and it was a daring plan, but Washington had a spy, and he knew that the Hessians were going to go to Trenton, New Jersey and establish their winter quarters, and at the time, Trenton was a small town with only a hundred houses and two main streets, so it wasn't that big, and they were going to put the Hessian people there, and he had a spy named John Honeyman, posing as a Tory, maybe a loyalist, was in Trenton. And he was serving with people in Quebec. He had kind of served with, uh, with Washington in the uh, French and Indian War. And he goes to this camp and he gets the trust of the British and he gathers intelligence, but also begins to convince the Hessians that the Continental Army was not in any state to attack Trenton, that they were completely safe. Why would they cross the river? They're in bad morale. They don't have the ability to do it. And shortly before Christmas, he, he had a... Literally... This guy, Honeyman, plans his own capture by the Continental Army, goes back to Washington, and lays the whole thing in front of him. And the plan ended up being as such. General John Caldwalder would launch a diversionary attack against the British garrison at Bordentown, New Jersey, and would block off reinforcements from the south. And General James Ewing would take the 700 militiamen across the river at Trenton Ferry, seize a bridge over the Aspinuck Creek, and prevent enemy troops from escaping. But the main assault force of 2,400 men would cross the river nine miles north of Trenton, split into two groups, one under Green and one under Sullivan, and launch a pre-dawn attack. Sullivan would attack the town from the south and Green from the north. And depending on the success of the operation, the Americans could possibly follow up with an attack on Princeton, New Brunswick. Trenton itself was not a military city. It was not a fort. It lacked any walls, any fortification, any real semblance of a, of a real, you know, protection, a real safe place to be. And they were advised to, you know, fortify this town, but they were pretty slow at doing it. They were disagreeing on plans. They were saying, you know, what are we going to do? And one even said, quote, let them come. We will go at them with the bayonet, end quote. And they decided to not fortify the town. Now, before Washington and his troops left, Benjamin Rush went to General Washington and went to cheer him up. While he was there, he saw Washington write something, and he wrote, quote, victory or death, end quote. And these words were going to be the password for this surprise attack. Now, each soldier was to carry 60 rounds of ammunition and three days' rations. And when the army arrived on the shores of the Delaware, they were already falling behind schedule, and clouds began to form above them. And then it began to rain, and then the temperature dropped, and then the rain turned to sleet and then snow. But the Americans began to cross the river anyway. The men went across in Durham boats, 
while the horses and artillery went across on large ferries, and the 14th Continental Regiment of Glover manned the boats. During the crossing, several men fell overboard, but no one died during the crossing, and all the artillery pieces made it over in one condition. At 4 a.m., the soldiers land and begin to march towards Trenton. Along the way, civilians even began joining these columns as volunteers, led as guides, and then shared their knowledge of the terrain. And as soon as they reached Jacobs Creek, where, with difficulty, the Americans also made it across, then the battle begins to occur. At 8 a.m., the outpost that was set up by Hessians at a copper shop at Pennington Road, about one mile, you know, one mile northwest of Trenton, Washington led the assault, riding in front of his soldiers. And this is where you begin to see Washington as the mythological figure he is. He made a mistake. Troops were on Manhattan, somehow were left there, and weren't told to escape immediately. Troops were left on Long Island, got completely chewed up. But now here he is, riding in front of his soldier. And a Hessian commander at the outpost named Andreas Winderholt, left the shop, and American soldiers began firing at him, but they missed. And he shouts, quote, Der Feind! Der Feind! End quote, which translates to roughly the enemy, the enemy. And Hessians began to come out. And the Americans fired three volleys, and the Hessians actually were able to return one of their own. But they ended up overrunning the Hessian camp. The Hessian regiments began to prepare for battle, and the Hessians were causing all sorts of problems for the Continental Army. They were unbelievably well-trained. They were unbelievably well-equipped. But eventually, the Hessians in the field, still trying to reorganize, make one last attempt to retake Trenton before they could escape. And they began to attack American flanks at the heights of the north of the town. And they began yelling to advance and advance and advance. And drums were playing and bugles were going off. And they were playing fifes, all trying to raise the spirit. But Washington was still on the high ground. And he saw the Hessians moving towards the right flank. And he moved his troops to assume a battle formation against the enemy. And these two Hessian regiments began marching down King Street. You know, one of the two main streets, but were caught in American fire that came from three directions. Americans had enough time to take up defensive positions inside houses that reduced their exposure. And they weren't really fighting in this sort of frontal way that they had been trained to do. They were hiding behind stuff, which was completely different. But the Hessians still continued to push. They even recaptured one of their cannons. The Hessians were still, though, making ground. They had retaken their cannon. They had moved all the way to the end of the street, but when they got there, they were unable to fire their guns, and their push stalled. Their formation broke, and they began to scatter. And then Washington, from the high ground, sends his troops all the way down, saying, quote, March on, my brave fellows, after me. They end up pushing the Hessians into an orchard, and the Americans were right on their tail and surrounded the Hessians. And then, terms of surrender were given. Many things have been attributed to the defeat of the Hessians. These were a fantastic military force from Germany, but they also make a big deal about Christmas. So one of the officers in Washington's staff wrote before the battle that, quote, They make a great deal of Christmas in Germany, and no doubt the Hessians will drink a great deal of beer and have a dance tonight. They'll be sleeping tomorrow morning." End quote. In our old, you know, in our retrospective look, we say, oh, well, maybe they were drunk and Washington planned it perfectly in a sort of surprise attack. But when they got there, there was a quote from one of the Patriot historians who was there, and he said, quote, I am certain not a drop of liquor was drunk during the whole night, nor I could see even a piece of bread was eaten, end quote. 
and a military historian named Edward G. Lengel wrote, quote, The Germans were dazed and tired, but there is no truth in the legend claiming that they were helplessly drunk, end quote. And this really helps the American story of things. You know, people always say, well, they were drunk, and the Americans snuck up on them and got them when they could. But in all seriousness, most of the evidence points that they weren't, and the Americans simply maneuvered in more tactically advanced ways. They fought in a new way. They were hiding behind things. They were doing things quickly, avoiding a full open confrontation with a force that was designed to fight in open fields. And this sets the stage for a new part of the war. The British had had their really large push into New York. They had their big push into you know, Long Island and New Jersey. But now the Patriots finally are starting to put some real victories under their belt. And that is all for episode two of Patriot Rising. Now check back in for next time. Trenton has been taken, but there's a lot to go.